Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is May 1st, 2018, and guess what I feel like doing? Dancing. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dance around the studio until this song is over. Another song from my well-spent youth. Yeah. Oh, and a song which has something to do with this week's guest artist. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Well, that was my cardio for the day. (laughs) That song was Brick House from the Commodores, their self-titled album in 1977. I just love that old school funk. It just makes me want to boogie. And like I said, this song also has something to do with our guest artist this week. Let's see if any of you out there can figure out who that might be. But before we get there, I'd like to open this segment with one of the songs our guest artist this week 
handpicked for this episode. Of love is in your eyes, a look, your smile can't disguise the look of love. It's saying so much more than just words could ever say. Thank you.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was The Look of Love by Dusty Springfield, British pop star galore, from the Casino Royale soundtrack back in 1966. So, you might be thinking, just who is our guest artist this week? Did Michelle Carlo get Sean Connery or one of the other James Bonds from the 1960s? Is it Dusty Springfield? Is it an ex-prom queen? Hmm, who might it be? And what, if anything, does this all have with the Commodore's song Brickhouse? Well, kids, stay tuned. You're about to find out. Because right now, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! Today I'm sitting here with a storyteller and an author whom I can't remember how or where we met. This man just appeared in my life. <laughs> oh, and the other thing is, like, I, f- I found out that his last name is it's actually also the title of the song that we played to open this episode. <laughs> All right, so please welcome Fish Out of Agua listeners to the amazing Jamie Brickhouse. <gasps> it's the Brick. Dun, 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 the house. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle, and thanks for playing Brick House. You know, it. I, I love that I have a theme song, so it has always been my dream to go on The Tonight Show, and you know how the band would play, you know, a, a song associated yeah, yeah, with yeah. that celebrity as they walked in? Mm-hmm. So I just thought, you know, someday when I go on The Tonight Show, the band's going to play Brick House. But you know what? This is even better because now I'm Michelle Carlos, oh. Fish Out of Agua. And, and no you band. played my theme song. And there's no band. So here though. I am. Aw, thanks. No, but you played the song. That's so. true. And, and oh, thank you, Jamie, because I think you already, you are already a celebrity. At least you're a celebrity <laughs> in, in storytelling world for sure. Um, so I asked this question of everybody at the beginning how and when did we meet? Well, you may not remember because. You didn't know me yet, and I didn't know you actually. I hadn't, I hadn't seen you perform. Uh, I maybe have heard, like, seen your name on on storytelling Facebook stuff. But I went. I was at um, Sideshow Goshko, mm. uh, Leslie Goshko's Leslie Goshko. fabulous uh, storytelling show at KGB Bar, and it was my first time there. I wasn't performing, and uh, you told this great story about your about being in the Bronx, living, growing up in the Bronx in the 70s, and how friggin' cold it was, uh, and then going to a club downtown. And then after that, I've seen you hither, here, and there, and so. Yep, and here we are. And here we are. Wow, so when do you think that Sideshow Goshka was? Like two years ago, three years ago? I would say two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. So storytelling is kind of a new thing for you? Yeah, or new, new-ish, 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 like in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think I started in 2014. I moved to New York to work in publishing. I was also doing some stand-up comedy, and and I loved it, and it was a lot of fun. But I thought, you know, um, I'm funny, but I'm not 
the typical comedian of, you know, set up joke, set up joke, set up, yes. set up joke, joke, joke. And I'm like, I'm more of a storyteller. I wish there was an avenue for me to be a storyteller. And then I, I found, I heard about the National Storytelling Festival. Oh. Which is in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And my partner, um, Michael, or Micah Hayes, as I call him, uh, and he's one of his nicknames uh, in my book, he's from there. And so we went to the National Storytelling Festival, and I thought, well, this is really cool. When was this? This was like a long, this is like 90 or 91 oh or something, my a God. long time ago. And, um, and that was around the time I was still doing stand-up comedy. I thought, oh, well, this is great. But th these were all, they were all like, most of them were folk folklore storytellers. Yeah, and yeah. This, is, this is what I want to do, but I want to tell my own stories, my personal In stories. In the 90s, you thought this. Right. But I just thought there's no one doing this. No. And there's no place for the, me was it to the, do this. Was this the late 90s or the mid-90s? No, this was the early 90s. Oh, my gosh. So, so the moth hadn't even begun yet. No. Because George, George Dawes Green, who's another Southern, right. southern yeah. gentleman, I think um, that happened on his porch in Georgia, I think Georgia. he was from, yeah, he's from in like the mid-late 90s, maybe like 95 or yeah. 96. Because yeah. I was going to ask you, well, I detect a slight southern lilt in your voice. <laughs> Where yes, you are do. you from? But now we know you're from Beaumont, Texas. Which is southeast Texas. Southeast and, you know, Texas. Texas is big, so yeah, there, Texas there are all is these like different huge. regions mm -hmm. of Texas and different accents. So you're the part of Texas that's close to Louisiana. To Louisiana. Correct. Right. So, so, so Beaumont, it feels like a very southern town because it's so close to Louisiana, but it's also a very Texas town because it was founded on oil. Huh. And it's near Interesting. Interesting. Is it is is that where near the Gulf Coast? Is that ooh, Gulf Coast? You see, you close. So it's a beach town. Yeah. Wow. So you guys would get hit with hurricanes and stuff. Yeah, and they like that last hurricane that happened last uh, this past summer. Beaumont was flooded. Oh wow. Uh, what was it? Har hurricane Harvey. Yeah, yeah. Harvey. Yeah. yeah. No, I was going to say Maria, but no, Maria's the one that hit my people. Maria hit my people. Oh, yeah, right. And right. the other one and hit y'all people. Maria was right after Harvey. Yeah, Maria right? was yeah. right. At, yeah, yeah. Was, it was like two weeks apart or something. Yeah. So, Jamie, um, did you always want to be a performer? Did you come from an arts-oriented or arts-appreciative family? My, yeah, my parents, uh, who I, I call Mama Jean and, and Daddy Pooh, Jean and Earl, they loved the theater and they loved movies and they exposed that to me and they also they did my dad um even before he was married to to mama jean w did was active in the local the beaumont community players the little theater and and did a lot of different uh, shows in that he was an actor yeah a local you know in yeah, the yeah yeah, yeah, yeah like, like yeah. community theater community theater exactly you know acted in uh, neil simon plays and um, seven Year Itch, she was in that, and Tea House with the August Moon, all these, you know, shows. Wow, those are like pretty 60s. serious plays. Yeah, and um, Mama Jean also had done theater, you know, in school and stuff, and then and then they did a little bit of community theater when they got married, and then they had their own um, dinner theater for a while. They were doing these shows for people who were there on conventions. I don't know, it was like, it was like for the trade uh, tourist industry. It was kind of a weird thing. So I was, but when I was little, like I'm talking about three to six years old, I was always there. And, and I remember, or I don't actually, I don't remember this, but a friend of hers told me this after she died. Um, she said she remembered me saying in this, but it, it rings true. I said, I, you know, I want to be on the stage. Where's, where's there, in there a part for me? And she said, she said, no, you're going to be a writer. That's what you're going to be. And I know that that was true because my whole life, I remember her saying that to me. Um, and she, 
saw that in me, and she also saw it in me because I was very much like my father. And my father had a talent for writing, and in all of his jobs, he was in PR, um, and it, it, his jobs always involved writing. He also did it for fun, like he would write birthday poems for, for friends and stuff. And so she thought, saw that in me, and she kind of like, I think she also saw in me, like she wanted me to go like a level above them. Oh, okay. So they were art, they were arts appreciative parents. Yeah, and th then they would have season tickets to the all the touring Broadway shows that came to Houston, and we would go Great. to those all the time. So I was exposed to the theater, and I loved it. Did you have siblings? Did you like make plays with them or anything? Or? I had older. I'm I'm the only child of of Mama Jean and Daddy Pooh. Oh, okay. Um, she had two uh, sons from a previous marriage. Her husband died. And they were eight and nine years older than I. Um, so, you know, there was a big gap there. But um, I, I mean, I expressed myself artistically. I was in, you know, I was in the drama club. I was, I did, the, did all the school plays. Um, and I also wrote. Um, I mean, she was right that I, I, I did have a talent so for writing. And I was on the school newspaper in junior high and in high school. I was the editor there and, and, and um, wrote a lot. And then when I went to college, um, Where did you go to college? I went to Trinity University, a small liberal arts university in San Antonio. Oh, oh the big city. Yeah, the big city. Well. So I got out of Beaumont, you know, which was great because I wanted to get out of Beaumont. I wanted to get out of that provincial town um, and do bigger things. And so, but in college, I went, I did theater, but I went the safe route. And I, I didn't I, I didn't major in it. Um, I, I majored in uh, communication journalism. Um, so I kind of went that middle of the road you know, vaguely artistic, you know, still in a creative field, but not going whole hog with that, you know, and, and I regret, I mean, I had a great time in college and it was a great school and I did well, but I wish I had been a double major in theater and English. Mm. But there was this kind of bait and switch in the late 80s when I was still in college, that's when the, the stand-up comedy boom happened, you know, where like every every town was opening up a comedy club. And everybody was like, wanted to be that person at the mic in front of the brick wall. Exactly, no in front of the red brick wall. The red brick wall, the no red... matter what city that we're in. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, this is this tells you how big the explosion was that my hometown of Beaumont, Texas, which is a small town, it's actually a medium-sized town, but it feels like a very small town. They opened a comedy club in the late '80s. So, so the so once it hit, once it hits Beaumont, because Beaumont's always about five to ten years behind the curve, then you know. <laughs> oh my God. Then you know, a it's happened, and b it's over. And so I, I got I got together a routine. I remember walking around in my suburban neighborhood you know, thinking of this routine about being gay and that, you know, that TV made me gay, you know, because, you know, I used to uh, stand in front of the opening credits of I Dream of Jeannie and do the I Dream of Jeannie dance, you know, with my, <laughs> with my hands over my head and my feet pointing out in opposite directions. Oh, my God. Well, I, did Mama Jean and, and Earl come and see you do it? Yeah, they did. They did. They and loved did, it. Did she tell you that you should be a writer afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> Um, she didn't say quit your quit college or so I did stand-up comedy I moved to New York with a push from Mama Jean to get into publishing I took this postgraduate course called the Radcliffe publishing course at Radcliffe Harvard very fancy and I was actually not sure if I was I, I thought maybe I'll stay in San Antonio for another year and figure things out and it was Mama Jean who said no San Antonio New York is where you need to be especially with your lifestyle which was you know because you had come out by, you had I had come, come out, out by, yeah, my freshman year in college and so I took this course with the intention of moving to uh, uh, New York, um, and I did. 
I had been fascinated by New York since I was a kid, mesmerized through the old movies I saw, the like TV which, shows. Some movies, oh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Everybody loves that one. Yeah, yeah, which I thought was my discovery because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I was the gay kid in high school, no one knew about Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, and then it made me mad that everyone else knew about it, um, you know, a few, a few years later. <laughs> and How dare you exactly, know about my movie? Exactly. And my parents brought me to New York when I was a freshman in high school. And wow. That first night, we, they, my parents, as I told you, were, they loved the theater. And so when, when they, whenever they went to New York, they saw all the shows. And that's what we did. And so we had a show every night, except we didn't have a show the first night booked. And so the first night we got there, my mother got, checked us in the hotel in Midtown, called to see if we could see a show. And she got us tickets. And we walked. She said, we're going to walk to Times Square. It was 1982. So it was still very 70s. But yeah. Right at the end, it was very cold because um, it was it was Christmas time, and so that was thrilling to me because we're, we're Beaumont's not cold, so it was great that I could finally wear sweaters and you know and a, and a coat. And so we're going to see Woman of the Year starring Raquel Welch wow. at the Palace Theater, and so I'm standing under the marquee, taking it all in, kind of scared, extremely excited, and then I look at the end of Times Square, the the southern tip of Times Square, and there's this huge giant billboard, and I'm also a you know, a budding homosexual. I mean, I knew I was, but and uh, there at the end of Times Square is that famous Calvin Klein underwear ad from the, oh, the bronzed guy. So yes. I'm looking at that, and then I look across the way, and there's the old, the Howard Johnson's restaurant, and on top of it is the, the gaiety, and it, uh, and it says all, all male, all nude dancers, and there are these light boxes of these, you know, guys in various states of undress, and I was like, okay, I think this is the town for me. And I came to New York, and I got into publishing, and then I would, but I wanted to perform, and so I was doing the stand-up comedy thing for a while. And I had fun, but it didn't, it didn't take off, and I was impatient. And I was also becoming a pretty devoted alcoholic at that time. I wouldn't have said that at the time. I was just having a lot of fun. And I was also doing a little freelance writing because I said my mother, you know, um, both my parents wanted me to be a writer, but you know, my father, because it was a talent I inherited from him, and my mother, because she just saw that talent in me and she thought that that was my ticket to, to, to a bigger life. And um, so I was doing a little freelance writing while I was also doing the comedy thing, while I was also, you know, ha starting a real career in publishing uh, that was going very well for me. Um, but when the, when the comedy wasn't kind of taking off and the writing wasn't kind of taking off and I wasn't putting the work into either that you have to do mm. um, to be good at anything, I just, I, I stopped after a while, and even, and I had some big breaks. I did voices on Beavis and Butthead because uh, one of the producers of the show saw me at the comics, at the Stand Up New York, and said, sounds like you can do voices really well, because in, in a lot of my, in my bits, I would do, you know, I would do my mother. Were you a continuing character? Not a continuing character, but I did bit, uh, I did like a lesbian security guard. Um, at an art museum where they, um, the, where Beavis and Butthead get in trouble, and, like, <laughs> oh, and then I was a uh, uh, when Butthead is stuck in a pipe, I was the um, local news reporter, Trish Burby, Action News, you know, covering the, the scene. Wow, Beavis and, and Butthead. So you have, so you're after them. 
no, no, I'm not. it was non-union. I, I, it was non-union. They were looking for cheap talent. So oh, they were, they were cheap very, talent. Exactly. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did get paid nicely, but yeah, not, not the. Uh, wow. Voiceovers. But my point is, I had some nice so breaks cool. in there, and then I didn't do anything with it, and because I thought, you know what, this is not going anywhere, and I don't. I've got a, you know, I've got this career in publishing I need to pursue, and I didn't really say this, but this is what also was going on. Is like, and then I want to drink. You know, I wanted mm. to have a good time, and I did have a good time. I had a great time. I had a lot of fun. But your life sounded like it's so amazingly complicated at this point because you have a day job, mm-hmm. the publishing, you have a night job, the stand-up, and then you have writing, which is your side hustle, and your voiceovers, which is your side hustle. Like, when did you have time to drink? <laughs> well, that's what I mean. <laughs> I, I, I got rid of the I got rid of the, uh, the stand-up comedy, and I got rid of the voiceovers, and I got rid of the writing, um, and just you know it kept to the day job and you know and drinking and having fun at night and that's what happened and i but i mean i wasn't like i didn't insist i didn't really say okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pursue stand-up comedy right. and i'm not gonna write i mean i did a little bit because i was like oh it's, it's too much work and it's not going anywhere mm. fast so enough. you convinced yourself but i didn't say i'm not gonna do that right. so that i can drink right. Right. but i love throwing parties like my partner and i had a lot of parties and we had and we had really fun raucous you know, did you pattern them at the um, breakfast at Tiffany's? Tiffany's? Yes, you n- yes, you nailed it. That because party scene that part? where she stuffs everybody into the apartment. Yes, yes. Oh my and, god! And the woman's hat gets on fire, and then a yeah, drink yeah, yeah. falls into it and puts mm-hmm. it out. That is what what I saw in that scene. As a kid, I was like, "That's what I want." So you that's the life. What I want. I want that kind of party in New York. And I got it. So and you, we threw, re- and it you was, recreated it. And it was an apartment it. similar to that where people, you know, it was, it was a cute brownstone and the people were packed in there and they were fantastic. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But the problem is, um, is that I never wanted the party to end. And even, and literally, the, for me, the parties wouldn't end. Like even after the parties ended and all the guests had gone and, you know, and Micah Hayes, my partner, had gone to bed, I would always stay up for just one more, which was not just one more. It was like several bourbons on the rocks while I would sit there in the dark, usually playing um, Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is? You know, kind of surveying the mess of the party. And you know that song about uh, where she basically says, you know, at at each of life's kind of major events, um, you know, she kind of gives this existential, asks this existential question, is that all there is to the circus, to a fire, to love? And if that's all there is, then let's break out the booze and have a ball. That was my absolute favorite song for a while um, until, uh, until I was starting to kind of question, you know, is this all my life has become? Is nothing but a party. No were and no substance. W- was your day job satisfying you at this point, or were you, I mean, obviously you had to be good enough at it that you kept it. Yeah. So how how was that part of your life working for you at this at that moment? Because publishing is a business like advertising. It's mm-hmm. just creative enough that a person with artistic sensibilities or who wants to be an artist or is a shadow artist because they're not pursuing it from fear can convince themselves that the artiness that's inherent in those two businesses is enough. You are very smart. And it's like, you you don't even know me that well, but you just, you, you've just read me, girl. Oh my God, I, no, well, because, I'm, a water, no. I'm a water sign, I'm intuitive. No, but you said it, you said it beautifully because you just summed up what my experience was 
which uh, working in book publishing, I was a book publicist and and I certainly did well in my career and, and advanced pretty quickly and ended up being VP, executive director, you know. Lots of responsible a, a position. publishing house. But you're exactly right. It was, I was a shadow artist where uh, it was just creative enough that it was somewhat satisfying but also frustrating because then I was around all these writers, you know, that uh, they were doing it. They were doing it. They were and, doing it. And I wasn't. And, it, and with, with each year that went by, I thought, well, I'm never going to do it. And I can't do it. And I, and I don't have that kind of talent. And then and 20s turn into 30s, and yeah. 30s is looking at 40. And yeah. 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 Wow. So did you, did you have an actual bottom? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, can we get serious? We can get serious. Can we get a little serious. We, we can get we yeah. can get as serious as you. Yeah. Want. Well, alcohol um, is a depressant, and uh, a lot of people either don't know that or don't or forget that. You know, because obviously everyone thinks you take you drink to to make yourself happy and you know and make yourself high to you know to or, or to to bring yourself out of a depression if you're upset over something. What's the more cool? you drink, it it brings you down. Mm. And when you're drinking alcoholically, like I was, which was a lot. Um, I mean, I was an everyday drinker for many years. Uh, sometimes at lunch, and then you know, and then it increased and it increased and. Um, it, it it brought me to a uh, deep in a uh, sunk me to a deep well of depression, oh, and dear. and it also I started being I started screwing up a job you know on the on on the job and then I got fired um, from that job from that last VP executive director job and it devastated me and I was it because of drinking it was. Um, but I didn't admit that, you know, oh, I, my God. Uh, to oh, me, you know, I Jamie. rationalized it, that it was all these different, you know, forces and blah, blah, blah. And, and I had always done well in life. You know, I was a straight A kid and, you know, it had excelled at, at, at everything that I pursued seriously. Um, so I was just, you know, devastated by that. And I was already sunk low into a depression and I took an overdose of sleeping pills, um, and yeah, tried to kill myself. And um, so that was my bottom. So that's a serious bottom. And my partner found me, Micah Hayes, and I went away to rehab. And, and my mother, Mama Jean, who had also been, you know, always eyeballing my drinking. And, you know, she, she saw that as a problem in me and also saw that just like I had in, inherited uh, my writing talent from my father. She saw that I inherited my drinking talent from my father because he was a heavy drinker. And so she had always been on me about my drinking. And then, you know, when that bottom hit, she hopped on a plane and flew to New York. And- um, Did you go back home to do the- I was, I, I, I was here in New York when that happened and then went, you know, went to the emergency room and then was in, mm. in detox in, at Cabrini Hospital, which is now closed uh, for a week. And then when I came home, um, Mama Jean was there uh, with Micah Hayes and then some friends uh, came over, two psychiatrist friends of mine and a third friend and had a little intervention. I was ready. I had already kind of agreed to go away to rehab. So I went away to rehab and uh, it was the best thing that could have happened for me. 
when I came back, I started, you know, I, I got into, I started going to sober meetings and, and, and doing all that. And it took me a while to stay sober. I had um, struggled with it for a couple of years before I finally got sober. And, but I, were, but I, the great thing about being an alcoholic all those years, you accumulate an avalanche of great stories. Oh, <laughs> I had a feeling we were going to get back to that point. So what was the point where you decided to, to not be afraid and start writing? Or the last time that I was trying to get sober, that's when Mama Jean, um, she started slipping away. And we didn't know what was wrong with her yet, but we found out later she had this thing called Lewy body dementia, which is, it's like Alzheimer's, but only weirder and worse. And, um, you know, and she'd always, you know, and I'd never told her that I had, was still struggling with the drinking after I came back from rehab, because um, I was too afraid to tell her. And, and she also paid for the rehab, so I didn't want to piss her off. So here's kind of the turning point. So she is, um, she goes completely haywire, and my father has to hospitalize her in this geriatric facility in Houston. And so I did what she'd done for me, and I jumped on a plane and went down to Texas to her rescue. And I had, you know, my father and my brother who was down there warned me that she may not know me. And we, so at the, in that visit, she really didn't know me. Um, and, and I was struggling, you know, with the, with the drinking at that point. So as I'm kind of devastated by what I've just seen, and I, I start to leave, and she grabs me and I turn around and she just points at me and then like she's all of a sudden, like before she had this kind of vacant look on her face and then she was herself. And she looked at me and she said, you've been drinking. And I said, no, I haven't. She said, don't lie to me. Oh and I God. said, no, I haven't. And I wasn't lying and I was sober at that moment and I had, um, I think I had seven months sober again and I was struggling to finally get a year because I'd never had a year, a full year of sobriety yet. And, and I said, remember, you took care of that. I have you to thank, you don't have to worry anymore. She said, okay, but promise me, promise. I said, I promise. And that was like the last push I needed. Because I remember saying to myself, you know what, who would blame me if I drank over my mother losing her mind? And then I said, there's another way to look at it. If you can't stay sober for yourself, do it for her. Mm. And that's what I needed. And then five months later, she died in December, the following December, and I finally got a year sober. And I've been sober ever since. And then it was a year, then I started writing. Um, some freelance opportunities came my way. And so that got me, and I hadn't written in years, and that got me excited about writing again. And then a, a former um, editor friend of mine that I used to work with, she read one of the pieces and she said, oh, this is really good. She said, if you're looking to do more writing, um, a friend of mine just retired from the Columbia Creative Writing Program and she's starting her own private write workshop. I said, I'd love to. Because at that point I was toying with, do I have a memoir in me about um, my mother, Mama Jean, who had just died, and about my alcoholism, one or the other. So I enrolled in this workshop and I started writing. And it gave me the confidence, well, first of all, it, it, it gave me the discipline because I would have to show up with material every week. So it got me writing, which is the number one thing you have to do if you want to be a writer is write. Yeah. And then it built my confidence up. And and I realized I did have a book in me. And, and I thought, 
I'm e am I writing about my alcoholism? Is it a story, is it a recovery memoir? Or is it a memoir about my relationship with Mama Jean? But then I realized that every time I wrote about her, there was an undercurrent of, that, of booze and alcoholism. And when I wrote about the alcoholism and the drinking, there was an undercurrent of her. And so I was like, this is, it, they're both. It's, it's, and so it's, I it's, told that story through the prism of my relationship with her, or I told my, uh, the story of my relationship with her through the prism of alcoholism. It's like another Southern Gothic story <laughs> of, with undercurrents of, of homosexuality, secrecy, and madness, yes, and, yes. Al and alcohol. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, in so Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of yes. Booze, Sex, and My Mother is the book that and that turned into. It came out. It came out. It came out uh, from St. Martin's Press in 2015 in hardcover. Wow. Was, was that the press that you had worked for before? I had at one, but not the one I was fired from. Okay, because that, that, that would have been. I had worked there many years before. That yeah. would have been the, the most delicious <laughs> irony that your book was published from the same press that kicked you out one Exactly. Door. They let you in another. That would have been. Oh funny. my God, dangerous and and dangerous when wet has gone on to become a solo show. Tell us about that. Yes, in DC and San Francisco. Francisco upcoming this year. Are you doing um, the fringes? I am. DC, okay. Capital Fringe, and at San Francisco Fringe. Well, yeah. tell us about the. But, but the, I'll tell you about the, the evolution. Yeah. yeah, the evolution of it. Kind of, it started with storytelling. Mm. Because. So you discovered the, storytelling in the, the book, interim? As I was finishing writing the book, or maybe I had, maybe I, I may, it was, it was before the book came out. I may have had a, a, a final draft, but I had, so some of the stories in so the book. So this is like 2012, 2013 at yeah. this point? Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. So some of the stories in the book were, were some chestnuts of mine, like that I had been, you know, the kind of stories I told at parties and, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. And one was about drunk dialing the singer Peggy Lee. Um, and No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Oh my God. <laughs> and she took the call. Oh my God. <laughs> and that's in my show. That's it. So that's one of the first stories I told. And I told I go out to Fire Island every summer to Cherry Grove, and I'm part of a sober community there. And at the end of the season, they always have an end of season celebration dinner, and there's a variety show. And there's a lot of there's a lot of drag, um, as you may or may not know. So most <laughs> of the acts are are drag queens, or you know, are wannabe mm -hmm. drag queens. And so the first time I did the show, I was I was chairing the event. And, and I did I did drag and I um, and it was a lot of fun. So the next year, I I thought you know what I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a spoken word. I wouldn't even call it storytelling. I'm going to do like a spoken word thing. It's because everyone's doing drag and I want to do something Wait, different. At Cherry at, at Cherry Grove at, at a drag at this, show, you're going to you're going to do spoken word. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And uh, and so I did the Peggy Lee story and uh, about me drunk dialing her and you know and I I, I, I do the Peggy voice you know. Yes, this is Peggy. Who's calling? Oh, it's Jamie. Jamie Anderson? No, Jamie Brickhouse. What are you doing? Oh, just watching TV. What are you doing? But anyway, that's Peggy. How and did you get her number? A friend of mine. Well, it's part of the story, which oh, we've okay, okay. time into. Yeah. But a, a good friend of mine, his his boyfriend or someone he no a good friend of his worked at the hospital that she used to was always in and out of oh okay and he got her phone number and we were drunk and and we started talking about peggy we were listening to is that all there is over and over and my friend said oh my god this is wonderful she's fantastic this song is fantastic and then he turned to me and said you know i've got her number oh, what do you mean you've got her number and he explained what I just said, and he pulled it out, and I just, with, with liquor courage, I just grabbed that piece of paper from him, picked up my cordless phone, this was the 90s, and dialed Peggy, and 
she took the call. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah. I told that story and then I thought, you know, the way I'd written the book, it's, um, it's told episodically, like the chapters are almost, uh, they could almost stand alone. They're standalone stories for the most part, which obviously, you know, there's a narrative arc and thread through there. But, and I thought, you know, that I should, I should perform, uh, start performing some of these stories and you know be, and this will get me back on the stage and like and this was a lot of fun when i did this peggy lee story at the and i had heard about the moth but i didn't know much about it oh okay and i hadn't even listened to it i kind of heard about there how, was this storytelling thing oh i guess because Just being word of writing mouth and publishing and, yeah. yeah and oh and i also i remember when i worked at warner books which is now Hachette, and they published George Dahl's Green. I didn't know him, but mm. he was published at that time mm -hmm. when yeah. I was there, had, so I knew has, about him. He had him several and, novels, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so I'd heard about this moth thing, and I thought, you know, I should try, I should find out about that and try that. And then this friend of mine out there, um, this guy, John Reed, who unfortunately died um, suddenly last year, he had won a lot of moths, and he went by the name Reed, and, and, um, and someone said, oh, you should talk to him. And he... He said, sure, you know, he said, I haven't done it in a while, but I'll, I want to go back. And so he's brought me to my first moths. And this is what, 2012, 2013? 2013-ish, yeah. And, uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do, and so I, I started doing the moth, and maybe it was my third time I won. And, and then I was hooked. And then I, so I didn't know that there was this whole storytelling, because at that point the moth was, Full throttle. Isn't it amazing wow. how the moth has blossomed in, in, in the past decade? It's, yeah. it's just incredible. So then I discovered there, there's, there was this whole marvelous storytelling community, and I started going to all the shows and doing the open mics and and becoming a better storyteller by storytelling. And I was mostly performing stories from my book, and and I thought, you know, as I'm doing more of these, I'm kind of creating a show, and I was like, I should do, you know. A solo show out of this and I got into the tank I hadn't written the show but once I got in I had a few weeks to, to write the show and I was like okay here goes Joyce what do you say book the venue you want to do a show book the venue then exactly. you have to do it. book the venue exactly. book the date then you have and to so do I it. did it and I did it all by myself I didn't have a director I didn't have anyone wow. any, any input um, and and it went and it went very well and I was happy with it but I was like, mm, it needs it, it it needs to be tighter, and it needs blocking, and it needs this. It needs a director. Well, yeah, because just like every writer needs an editor. Because otherwise, it's just a story. Right. You know what I mean? If it's going to be a theatrical show, you need to add theatrical elements. You yeah. just can't be standing. So then it becomes a monologue. Yeah. And so I, I then I got into the Frigid Festival, um, the one last winter, 2017. Yeah. I got into that, and then I got a director, this fantastic guy, David Drake who's not in the storytelling world. He is an act, a very accomplished um, actor and director, and he did this solo show in the early 90s called The Night Larry Kramer Kissed Me, which, I, was, a, which was a huge success. Yes, I He wrote it show. and starred in it. And and I... That's fantastic. You had somebody that was not in the community with a total outside eye that was not jaded and didn't know you in that sense. Exactly. So. That sounds fantastic. <clears throat> and you're going into your uh, second year of touring this show now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing to be to be a touring artist. Now, how do you reconcile present day job with 
being a touring artist because now that's your side hustle. You it's a lot, but you know what? I well, I don't have the, the the booze is not getting in the way. Right. No. So well, that, no. But, but, but before, that's, that takes a lot of time. But before by the you way. you had stand up, <laughs> you had voiceovers, and you had your day job. Right. So now you have your touring show. Well, yeah. You have your day job, and you have storytelling. Yeah. Um, I, I have my own business now, so ah, okay. um, I work from home, and. I set my own hours, and so I can manage my time so, exactly. So I've got my business that I run, and I can. The beauty of that is I can do it on the road. Um, as long as I've got my um, my computer and my phone, I can do I can do my business from there. Oh, exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. And you're working on a second book now, right? I am. Now it's Daddy Pooh's turn. Oh, um, so Daddy Pooh! <laughs> he died. Um, well, you know what? I'll, it, the story I'm going to tell. Is, a, is about him so Oh, great. Uh, is the book about to be published? Or are you still working on the manuscript? I'm still working on it, and I'm also, at the, the unlike the other, this time I'm having fun because I'm writing the, the book and I'm performing stories, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm writing the, sh the solo show and the book at, at the, the same, same time. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we're going to hear an excerpt from the upcoming I Favor My Daddy, a story about Daddy Pooh from Jamie Brickhouse. You know, Michelle, I never wanted to tell my octogenarian, conservative, Catholic father, Daddy Pooh, down in little old Beaumont, Texas, about my flings with the crack addict, or the priest, or the dwarf. But when you write a memoir about your alcoholism and all your sexual peccadilloes, Chances are, he's gonna find out. Now, Daddy Pooh had wanted me to be a writer my whole life, a talent I inherited from him. But I was too busy drinking to be a writer. But the beautiful thing about being an alcoholic and a potential writer is that all those years of drinking, you amass an avalanche of good material. So, a few years ago, when I finally put pen to paper, no one was more excited than Daddy Pooh. And when I signed the contract with a major, major publisher to have the book published, pretty much all of my phone calls with Daddy Pooh down in Beaumont, Texas, went pretty much like this. Is this Jamie Pooh? Yeah. How's that book coming? Uh, it's coming along. Well, hurry up and finish. I want it to come out before I die. <laughs> now, I hate to admit this, but I kind of have hope that he would die before it came out, so that way he didn't have to read it. I mean, I was revealing stuff in this book I never dreamed of telling Daddy Pooh, much less the whole world. I mean, besides those sexual flings I told you about, there was also the time when I was high on cocaine in Rio de Janeiro and almost had sex with a woman named Gladys. That's the real shocker. But besides all that, I was also writing, frankly, about my complex relationship with Mama Jean. And even though she had been dead for three years at that point, Daddy Pooh was still carrying the flame for her, the torch for her. And I was worried about how he would react to what I had to say about her. And you know, after she died, I kept hoping that Daddy Pooh and I would, would grow closer. I mean, not that there was any question of our love for each other, 
But when Mama Jean was around, she took up all the emotional space in the room, especially when it came to me. So there was, no, there was not much room for Daddy Pooh, not much room for us. So I was hoping now that she wasn't around that we would get the chance to, to know each other better, maybe trade some secrets. But I was so worried about how he was going to react to that book. I mean, I could just hear him say, my God, you, you can't publish this, this book of debauchery and all this appalling promiscuity. Not while I'm still alive. Not while I'm still living in Beaumont, Texas. You see, Daddy Pooh was a product of that small town. He'd lived his whole life in that conservative town. And you know what? I was a product of that town, too. I mean, even though I had been living in New York City for 20-plus years, I still worried about what Beaumont thought. So for a while, I thought, you know what? Maybe I won't let him read it until right before it comes out, when the presses have already rolled. So that way, if he has a bad reaction, it'll be too late for me to chicken out. And then I thought, no. Put on your big girl panties, get on a plane, and go down to Beaumont and deliver that manuscript to him in person. Which is exactly what I did a year before the book came out, Easter weekend 2014. So I gave Daddy Pooh the manuscript, and he disappeared into his study to read it while I sat in the other room on the edge of my chair like a bug-eyed cat on orange alert. Now, Daddy Pooh is a very vocal reader. It sounded like he was having sex in the other room. Oh, my God! Oh, that's wonderful! Oh, whoa! Oh, let's read that again! He moaned, he groaned, he guffawed. He even wept. At one point, when he barked out a laugh, I couldn't resist. I shouted, hey, what's going on in there? Oh, you just went home with a priest. <laughs> when he finished reading the manuscript, he shuffled out of his study. He was about 83 at that time. And he was carrying the manuscript between the palm of his hands like it was a sacred Bible. And he looked at me and he said, I love it. Absolutely love it. And I love what you wrote about your mother. Well, she did say I got my talent from writing from you. Oh, well, that may be, but I never could have written anything this good. Are you happy with it? I looked him in the eye and I said, yes, yes. And I realized that I hadn't been completely happy with it until that moment. I didn't know just how much I needed his blessing. And once I had it, I didn't care what anyone else thought. I didn't care what Beaumont thought. And you know what? After he read that, it, ha it opened up a whole avenue of conversation we'd never had before. We talked about our relationships with Mama Jean. We talked about drinking. We talked about sobriety. We talked about religion. We talked about sex. We talked about sex with priests. So the following New Year's Eve, 2014, Daddy Pooh died suddenly at 83. Of course, I was devastated, but I was so mad that he wasn't gonna be here for the publication of the book. He was so looking forward to it. Hurry up and finish. I wanted to come out before I die. But then I reminded myself, he did read it. He read the manuscript. So he died knowing everything about me and probably loving me more because of it. 
You know, in those last years, I was hoping that we would grow closer. Well, it finally happened at the 11th hour. And it happened the only way it can happen between two people, which is when we reveal ourselves, become vulnerable. And that never would have happened had I not gotten on that plane and given him that manuscript. And had I not done that, he wouldn't have been able to give me one last time what he'd always given me, his unconditional love. I'm so glad I didn't chicken out. Thank God I put on my big girl panties. Thank and you. Thank you for feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Oh my yes, God, ma'am. high five on the air. This is amazing. I can't wait to see um, this show. I favor my daddy. Yeah, that was a preview I, I, I from the new show. So. A preview for you, and you heard it here first, folks, on Fish Out of Agua. <laughs> so if people want to find about your appearances and, 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 and general Jamie Brickhouse fabulousness, where can they go? They can go to my website, which is Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, Brickhouse, B-R-I-C-K-H-O-U-S-E, dot com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, at Jamie Brickhouse, and Facebook, and I I post as much as I can. I bet you do. I've seen them, and they're (laughs) fabulous. You're fabulous, Michelle. Thank you. you. Well, of course, we're both redheads. Of course, we have to be fabulous. (laughs) So, Jamie, I ask this question of every every person with whom I speak before, at, at the end of our time together. And one thing I want to say first is that you you told me, you know, in, in, in the scope of our conversation, that how your father wanted to write and your mom wanted to act, and you ended up doing both. Yeah. And and you took them with you. <laughs> Absolutely. You, t- you took them with you. And now so, they're my best material. And and, and, and they and they've done it. Mm-hmm. They 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 have done it through you, and I just think that's a really oh really, thanks for saying for that. A really what a great be- insight. For a really beautiful thing. Um. You know, someone recently asked me why I tell stories. And I tell stories because I like to perform and I'm a big ham. I mean, that's the the obvious easy answer. (laughs) But the reason why I tell stories are the kind of stories I like to tell or what I like them to do. I want to be able to create in the audience the same experiences I felt when I lived the story the first time. Wow. So I guess we could say Mama Jean was right. Mama Jean was right. Mama Jean was right. <laughs> so, if you were able to say one thing to the child sitting alone, dreaming of a life that is different than the life that they have, of achieving things that maybe family or society thinks they should not want to dream to do, what would you tell that child? I would tell that child to go after whatever interests you and whatever you love the most and not be afraid of it and not to turn away from it for fear that you can't do it or you're not good enough to pursue it and to go after that and to find the people and places that are going to nurture that in you. I'm so glad that the world has your voice, Jimmy Brickhouse. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Thank you. Thank you for being on this Fish Out of Agua. This has been fantastic. Hug on the air. Yes. Hug on the air. Woohoo. 
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard the stories behind the stories of Jamie Brickhouse. Songs played during his interview were Dusty Springfield, The Look of Love, from the Casino Royale soundtrack back in 1966. We had a couple of reprises of uh, Brickhouse by the Commodores, and underneath part of the story where he was talking about telling the story about when he drunk dialed Peggy Lee, we heard Peggy Lee. Is That All There Is, an award-winning single from 1969. Well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you like what you've heard today or on any of the other fine shows on Radio Free Brooklyn, sponsor us. It's easy. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and look for the Donate tab. Click down and do what it says. Support living artists. And you can support living artists this way, too. Get our free mobile app and support Freeform Independent Community Radio and listen to us anywhere. For Android, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash Android. For iTunes, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash iPhone. We're going to close with the last of Jamie's picks from the Scissor Sisters, the aptly titled Filthy Gorgeous from their Filthy Gorgeous album that came out in 2004. See... We can play songs that came out in the 21st century here. (laughs) All right, tune into Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Walking down the street and a man tries to get your business.